Hello there and welcome to another episode of Ruben's podcast. A show where I speak to people about their lives over the last decade and the lessons they've learned along the way. On today's show, I'm chatting with Shruti Laktakya. I met her back in 2010 when we were both classmates and studied economics together. Almost a decade later, she was back in college, but this time as a teacher, coming a full circle indeed. So in today's conversation, she tells me more about this journey through the world of academia, why she prefers UK to the US even though she's moving there soon, her time working in East Timor and her realizations during those years, and how she's become a little less shy, or at least that's what people tell her. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can now buy us a coffee, link in the show notes below. For updates and announcements on new episodes, you can follow us on Instagram. We are at Ruben's Podcast. That's at Ruben's Podcast. Okay, with that, let's get to today's conversation. And yes, we are live. Shruti, how are you? Good morning. Hi, good morning. It's a, a very lazy Saturday. It is. It's 11 a.m. there. It is 11 a.m. And um, and you're just getting your morning coffee. I am. Yeah. Let's just say it's been a long week, and I'm I'm enjoying my Saturday so far. Where Where in the world are you right now? So I'm in Oxford in the UK, and uh, yeah, just up north of the city, where I have a very cute studio with a little patio, and I'm enjoying the sun. Yeah. If If you want to figure out where Shruti is currently sitting. uh just open up her instagram and one of her more recent pictures well i don't know when this is going to i'll upload it but you'll see a little cute little nook with the, is that a television mounted on your wall or is that a, like a like a monitor <laughs> it looks like it a television it is a television i know i wish i could say it was a monitor but i'm not that high tech and it is a television <laughs> it is a television um so yeah you can see that that's where shoshuti is is right now uh, in london and you've been there for well no is it london right oxford is in london No, it's no. a separate city. Oh, I mean, wow. by by like UK standards, they kind of do merge into okay, each okay. other very easily, but they're separate. Okay, um, that was a very noob question, but um, like fifty minutes by train, so not at all far. It's oh. like how much I used to take to go to college in <laughs> India from my house by metro. Correct. That's so, that's like saying Gurugram is same as Delhi, and I'm sure the Delhi people would be like up in arms. <laughs> um, how long have you been there? So since 2018. so this is actually the beginning of the fourth year of my phd i spent the last year most of it away in india during covid so in a way i feel like i've just got two years here and um, it's really nice to be back at the beginning of term where all the students are coming back and like there's at least some energy in the air i think the universities have been super dead or all on zoom for the last year so it's really special So so as a part of your PhD do you like teach kids I do yeah so for two years I taught students in the masters program so the masters of public policy uh kids who come to oxford and it was this course on evidence the use of evidence in public policy mm-hmm. which is a very it's kind of niche but not really i think mm-hmm. now people are using it more and more it's about using like evidence based methods to evaluate public policies are they working are they not how can they be designed better but it's all like founded on this econometrics 
tough if you remember from college vaguely <laughs> yeah exactly that's the expression i get from my students as well as the baby they're like what are you talking about so all of last year all of last year you were teaching kids on zoom yeah like online yeah for uh, for one term this was january to march actually this year hmm. that was on zoom from india Oh, and how fun. was that? It was fun. <laughs> no way. It was fun. I mean, for me, I I guess not so much for the students. They're like another seminar online, hmm. but in a way, it was good for me because it kept me super connected with the school, hmm. even though I was in India for a year. Yeah. So I could, you know, like um, every time I would be having a meeting with someone, I could actually see the you know background from my department. which kind of kept me happy so in that sense it kept me connected mm. but obviously i think face to face especially with teaching small groups like you know 10 15 20 people at a time yeah is is it's much easier so so as a as a recap uh, shruti sent me a voice note um so as a recap to what she's been up to and she sort of broke it down very systematically <laughs> so Shruti and I were classmates. Uh, we studied economics back at Stephens from in from 2010 to 2013. 2013, 2014, you did LSE. Uh, then you went to work for two years in East Timor, um, mm-hmm. and then you were, went to the US to study to study the Kennedy School. What what were you studying there? So I did this program called the MPA in International Development. Oh, okay, so it's okay. like a public policy program, but kind of more focusing on developing countries. Got it. Got it. So. East Timor. Then you ended up in the US to study more about like these developing countries, and then you decided to get your PhD. That's how you landed up back in the in Europe in London in Oxford, uh, and that is where you are right now. Uh, and mm-hmm. in in some time, you're going to be shipping off back to the US. That's true. Yeah, these are kind of my last few months in the UK, um, which is, you know, it's a little strange that it ended so quickly. Uh, Three years is not, but, not quick. I know. So I I was gonna say. So for the PhD, it feels like an era. It's like I want this to end yeah. soon. But I think you know, Oxford is a very tiny place. It is like a village. When the COVID first wave happened, I kind of was just like, no, it's a gown. Like literally, nothing is happening here. You just step out of your house, and two minutes away, there's a canal, and you walk into the forest. It's it's you know not a big city, and so the you know the. Ravages of big cities during COVID did not play out here in the same way, mm. but still, like I think, despite it being so small, there are like lots of nice things that I think I didn't appreciate as much before. So, like yesterday, I was on a walk with a classmate, and we were walking along this canal, and then we just came upon this bridge, and I was like, I think I'm going to miss Oxford. I'm feeling nostalgic already. So, yeah, I think I'm not ready to leave in that sense, but. Mm. Yes, the I think final few months of the PhD are painful. <laughs> I feel like anyone who's done that might be able to relate. It just you feel like you're done with it, but you're actually not. And there's this long list of changes you have to make. But mentally, you're like, I really don't want to look at this ever again. So I'm in that phase right now. So, so you've like you've done your thesis, you've written whatever book you had to write, and now it's just like back and forth on like closing it. Partly, yeah. uh i have written yeah most of what i had to write 80% i would say maybe even more than that but mm-hmm. there are like lots of revisions edits changes to things i also actually need to like do some additional tests of okay, the data and stuff okay but also 
uh, I'm not doing like a book based thesis, which is actually very common in the social sciences. But um, since I'm kind of more on the economic side of things, even within public policy, the economists do like these article based thesis. So you write three separate papers, which may or may not be very closely linked. And um, yeah, so it's not a book in that sense. Got but, it. Uh, yeah. So that's my, that's my thesis. So for people who knew Shruti back in college, it, it was, I think, fair to assume that she would eventually always, not eventually, but we pretty much knew that you would always be in economics or in that sort of field. Like, I think you really liked the subject. Um, and uh, you said that when you landed up in London, it was uh, a pretty rigorous year and you learned a lot of stuff which you should have learned in, in undergrad. Uh, talk to me about what that one year was and why was it so intensive? Um, I think there are two reasons. I think the first is coming from undergrad where I basically spent most of my time just walking around college. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I really feel like that's my predominant memory of college is just like walking around the university and the college. I have very few memories of being in class and being like, oh, this is, this is what's happening. So Really? I don't think people <laughs> yeah. who went to college with you would, would agree to that. <laughs> Maybe. So I think I was in class mm-hmm. a lot. A lot, yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, I know people who weren't in class a lot. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But, you know, um, yeah, I think the value of sitting in class versus the value of walking around was much, much. <laughs> yeah, I just, that's really what I remember doing in college. And maybe that's, so that was kind of what played into when I first got to LSD, I got the shock of my life. And I was like, what are all these things? I, don't, I have no idea what well, I just it, signed up for. Was it like math? Like, was it, did the math get like absolutely crazy? Or, or was it just the fact that you just had to study much harder, read much more, like apply your brains much more? I think both. I think both. I think for the math part, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult. It was just that we were, at least I was not used to thinking in that way and like, you know, studying or thinking about economics in that way. And probably Lima Man really tried in first year, but I think that didn't work out at that time. But then later when I went back to it, it was not difficult, but I just needed to spend a lot of time by myself starting from scratch and really, you know, reworking things in my head. But then also, yeah, I think the amount of work was insane just in terms of being able to keep up. I really struggled in the first term. Um, it was hard to just get used to the system, to figure out like where to get things, to even you know just read and understand what was happening. It took me a few times. So I think the first term was really hard in that sense. But then it got better. And... Um, you know, we have to do the usual micro, macro and econometrics, but then you have to choose one additional elective, essentially. And I was doing public economics, mm-hmm. which would not be a surprise given kind of <clears throat> the starting point, which was my interest in sort of government um, policy. And I guess spending is a very big part of it. So that's how I ended up doing that. And it took a while to just get used to things. Yeah, I remember like most of my memories of London in that year at the library. So in like very sharp contrast to, you know, DU, uh, I actually just spent way too much time in the LSE library. 
And this was also the first time you were living by yourself away from home. Yeah. Yeah. How was that? Like, was that, was that hard? It was hard. I think in some ways, I think again, it was like a phase and I, people I'd spoken to before getting there told me to expect it, that it, you come in and you know, you're at this high, you're like really excited. Things feel good. They're like welcome events. You know, you meet people. Then it gets really bad, especially it, it coincides with the weather and, you know, Christmas and like people go away for Christmas, but I couldn't leave that year. I was in London for the most part. And, um, and then you're like, I'm far away. It gets dark at 4 p.m. I don't understand anything. And then it gets really bad. But then when you actually start, things start getting better in the spring, like, you know, Jan, Feb, I think the high you reach then is sort of a more stable one. Um, not like the initial excitement, but, mm. um, and then it gets better. And so I, I, and I think I did follow that to some extent. Um, and I, I mean, I've been away since then for most part, since the 2013 to now, except for the year that I spent back in India last year. And I don't think it ever gets easy, especially, you know, if like, um, families back there, but yeah, I, I've seen the same pattern play out a few times. The the pattern of it, like immense excitement, then you feel like completely low and then you mm-hmm. sort of reach some kind of equilibrium, if you may. Correct, correct, <laughs> correct. Got it. So so you did a year, a year in London, which was a master's. Um, I know a bunch and, and I think this episode will come out a week after my episode with Pankhuri. Uh, she She overlapped with you, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. I think she did. She was there for two years, I think. Correct. She, she was, was she, she was there for two years. Yeah. And we were just talking about one year versus two years. Um, but the the one year was pretty intense, yeah, based on what you're what you're saying. Super intense, yeah. Mm. If you had to go back, would uh, you do two years? I don't think so because it worked out for me. So I guess, mm. you know, it's always like hindsight. But yeah. if it, it it I think if you're taking a chance and if you um are willing to kind of give it the time that it needs two years is better but mm. I don't I was kind of in this space where I was in a hurry of like okay I just need to finish my master's so that I can figure out what I need to do next and so and it worked out because I applied only to one job that year and I got it but if I hadn't or you know if I mean if things had gone one of a hundred other ways then I probably would have been like, maybe I needed more time. Maybe I shouldn't have rushed myself into this. So you applied to this job. You got it. I don't know what this job was, but that basically took you to East Timor. Before we go in, can you just describe where East Timor on the global map is? Because I don't think a lot of people know that. I did not know that before I first got to know that you were in East Timor. I have two kinds of friends. There are one sometimes friends, which are you, who are in like, like economics and policy. And then I have another friend who works in coffee. And I think the most exotic places come from <laughs> both of you guys. <laughs> so where in the world is East Timor and what the hell were you doing there? Um, actually, so East Timor is perfect for both because its main export is coffee and they have some really amazing coffee. And that's where I actually got into coffee, which is now my lifeline. But mm-hmm. um, so East Timor is actually very close to your part of the world. It's in Southeast Asia, um, east of Indonesia there's actually one island that they share with Indonesia. Um, and then on the other side, just a little bit further, I guess half an hour, 40 minutes away is 
Darwin, so super north part of Australia. So that's where Eastern Mall is. And, and you mentioned in your that you were not very happy when you landed up there. But so, so walk me through how you landed up in Eastern Mall. Why weren't you happy? And later that happened to be the best two years of your <laughs> life. So <laughs> tell me about that. That's true. There's a lot that happened. Those two years are pretty meaty, I think, you know, in terms of, yeah, like, you know, the 80-20 rule. Let, let's talk uh, about how, like, what the job was and, like, you applied for the job. Um, what was it and how did you eventually land up in, in Ishtamar? Yeah, so this thing that I did is called the ODI Fellowship. It's basically run by the Overseas Development Institute based in London. And they've been doing this for more than 60-70 years now. Mm-hmm. And um, they essentially pick students who either have some experience. I mean, a master's is required mm-hmm. and are interested in working in developing countries. Uh, it started off, I think, mostly for people in the West who hadn't had experience of being in developing countries. But there's a whole range of developing countries, right? So mm-hmm. anyway, so what they do is they take you um, for two years and you're working in a government, so in a ministry, usually a ministry of finance, ministry of education, health, mm-hmm. uh, central banks. And for two years, you're working as kind of like a civil servant, so a local civil servant in that government. The thing is, because you're coming in from outside, um, you do get an immense amount of responsibility. You get to work on like really, really cool things. And the kind of things that if I was, for example, in the Indian government, it would take me 30 years to get to the point that I could actually work on those things. So it's an immense amount of responsibility, but also a lot of learning. I think, you know, you're just like thrown into the deep end in this ministry, often in a country where, you know, you either don't speak the language or you have no idea of like what the work culture is, what people value, what the ministry wants, who the main characters are. You, you know, you it's, and yeah. just figuring out all of that is very exciting. You learn so much. I don't think there's anything um, that can teach you as much as being in, like, in a government in this setting. And Timor is a very, very cool um, place. So it only, so it had a civil war in 2004. It, you know, it's a very new country. And so they were still setting up their public finance systems when I landed, you know, like drafting laws related to procurement or debt and Mm -hmm. that's what I had done at LSE right like I had studied you know public finance and what is the optimal marginal tax rate that should be set and I can tell you um, and we can talk more about that later I guess that they're just two completely different worlds like those two don't fit together very well at all yeah but but before you go on that like it's kind of obvious right like Tell me who had the smart idea where, and no offense, that you studied basically one year of masters and they suddenly pick you up and throw you in this country which has no clue what how to do and they think that you'll figure it out. Like, I think it's not more about you figuring it out. I think it's more about you learning that you're actually, you can't figure it out. And I think for a lot of people who then go on and work in international organizations, especially from, you know, countries in the West, where this is not an issue. They haven't had to think about these things. Yeah. If you actually read some of the international development work, it's like, you know, it's really easy. Like, just get all these great institutions in order and then, you know, you yeah. have development. And I think that comes from part of not having worked in these contexts or like experienced them. Um, 
and you somehow think that you know there's something that that's so fundamentally easy but they're just missing it and you can step in and do it so i think you know that is exactly the point that you get there and you realize that there is so many things that you actually even though you might be an expert in air quotes um which is you know like a lot of economists with will say that they are experts in a lot of things uh, a lot of people will say that experts in a lot of things but i think expertise is it's a term that should be very carefully used um i mean even 30 years might not necessarily make you an expert in anything and i think it really just you end up with that sense of humility about what you really can do and can't do so mm. in a way it does exactly that um now i think there are obviously more people who are from developing countries who are doing this fellowship so i think they have a slightly different baseline when they go in um but again you know i feel like i said every developing country is different and yeah uh, and then you know you might go from india and you say oh my india can do this and you know we're so good at all of these things so you know um but yeah but but you mentioned east timor wasn't your first choice yeah so actually i was supposed to be going to liberia which is a country in west africa mm-hmm. and um this was 2014 the summer of 2014 and i was really excited about liberia because i was going to be working there say similarly in the um ministry of finance but there it was kind of like this macro fiscal policy role which is exactly what i wanted and so i kind of just like i was like this is it this is perfect and then ebola happened that year so that was the oh. year that ebola ravaged west africa and so they were like nope we're not sending you there and i was really upset i was willing to go i said you know just like okay i'll wait for a few months but you know like fine eventually things will get better and i'll go there yeah. but that didn't look like it was happening and so they were like no you're going to be reassigned and when you when you sign up for the fellowship you basically say i'm willing to go anywhere Mm. um and if there's a place that you're not willing to go you have to let them know that and i think again it's more of this idea that you know when you work on development you just can't pick like a few places and say okay this is what i want to do and like everything else is not my cup of tea so so at that point i didn't specify anything and so they were like okay you have a few options and those were papua new guinea to more or less and south sudan and uh we had this very complex process of negotiating with my parents <laughs> they were like what <laughs> um and so they so then i really wanted to go to png where mm-hmm. the role was in a central bank so i was like okay fine it's not macro fiscal policy central bank sounds really cool and then i made up my mind for that and my parents were like they completely vetoed it they're like that's not an option and i think but why in why retrospect they, why, why it makes sense so png is a really um i think it's at that time especially it was super unsafe um the capital like for example the indian i think the indian high commissioner there like they had like they had some really bad experiences and they were like people with security um previous odi fellows who i spoke to were like yeah you basically like live in like a jail you can't go outside you know like there's like robberies and kidnapping all the time it's just not safe at all and so my parents were like no i mean if it if, if safety is such a fundamental problem like we're not okay with that so then i was like fine you know i so i was like okay 
and then we kind of were like okay maybe south sudan i mean and you know like this is very relative levels of safety we're talking about it's all below like my threshold to be honest like yeah yeah i agree so i mean everyone was like what is happening and this discussion was like really intense and like we were like you know taking our data and then my dad was calling up people he knew who lived in those countries and you know he was doing his own like research and he was with a very intense period in my household i've heard this about south africa i don't know if it's a case there but they have like kidnapping insurance yeah yeah so did you have kidnapping insurance no but we had a few like safety insurance things that odi put in place for us they had and like we did this induction in london where they were like you know i mean uh, uh, some of it was i think useful like first aid i guess you know first aid is something that they should probably teach everyone right yeah. like it doesn't matter what country in the world you are in but then they were also they were like you know if you ever need to evacuate on a helicopter these are the protocols <laughs> wow. like what is happening here <laughs> so it was yeah it was a very interesting experience anyhow we were like okay maybe south sudan but then odi kind of were like you don't seem very convinced and so then they took an executive decision and they like you're going to east timor they need you they really want you so that's it and i was like okay fine so when i landed up there it was like i could have been in liberia i could have been in png and all these like you know would have and could have which was really what made me like a you know like a little ungrateful child on day one of like like oh, oh my god i could have had that and that but i think one thing that they said which i think has stayed with me for a long time not just in development i think anywhere is like, like you know you if you can take whatever cards have been dealt to you and like really still think about it constructively you know you it might be just a situation that's intractable and you might not be able to do anything but if you can at least just be constructive about how you deal with these things a lot will come and we promise you that you will get a lot out of it and so it was a little bit of that uh and i think the people were just so incredibly nice like i think on i was already like converted on day 2 i was just like this is i really like it um there were a lot of other odi fellows i think we had like probably the biggest contingent of fellows like there were seven of us uh, across two years and um yeah i think it was <laughs> it was just amazing well, what did you like about east timor like describe to me what east timor is like oh it's hard um so it's like a i'm thinking about it it's just um, it's like a small place right like a million people mm-hmm. um and uh, it has a very interesting history because they were originally like um th- there was portuguese colonialism there um and then there was an indonesian occupation which was really brutal uh and then they decided that they wanted to be an independent country they were like uh a lot of geopolitics related to oil for example so they have oil resources and so australia had a hand and like you know it was uh but the thing is the people at home speak bahasa indonesia so mm-hmm. even though they don't like indonesia they speak bahasa at home but yeah. the schools you know the education system is in portuguese because they're trying to like you know strengthen their uh, ties with portugal and the eu Yeah. But then they have their own indigenous language which is what like 
they also encouraged but there were a lot of donors who spoke english so you know if anything gives you an idea of like what a interesting place it was to be it was like these four languages around you all the time but like the choice of who speaks what language uh different generations spoke different things for example so like the older people all spoke portuguese much more easily um like middle aged and younger people spoke indonesian so it like told you a lot already it was just like a um yeah and then there's the coast everywhere so like this just the sea everywhere um they use a us dollar so i think that's another very interesting they're like a completely mm. dollarized economy they don't have their own currency uh, oh. and they're very reliant on natural exports so petroleum and coffee I was just googling because it it struck me. There's a movie called Sergio on Netflix, which is based in East Timor. That's correct, right? I think so. Yeah, I I should verify this, but uh, I I think I was just googling it. it. Uh, you should. Yeah, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah, it's it's about this UN diplomat. Um, mm-hmm. I think he was. I think a part of the movie is when he was in in um in east timor where they were sort of helping the new government take over or some stuff like that yeah yeah so the un was like the main game in town right after the occupation ended and they were like the main administrators and then that shifted and now they have like their own elections they have local government they have like a lot of um actually decentralization in that sense he spent two years there Two years on the beach, literally. The Ministry of Finance is very close to the beach. And what was your job? Like, what were you supposed to do there? I was working on a few things. I think the first was the national budget. So just you know, like, um, they had a process of you know how the budget gets done. Like, and like these processes are quite similar. I think across countries with minor differences, but you know. ministries give what they want it's always too much and then ministry finance like no you can't have that no you can't have that then there's like a huge process of bargaining and negotiation which is like filled with intrigue and drama and you know like all of the politics plays in like who's in whose coalition blah 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 and then at the end of it a budget is produced uh it's like no one really knows how that happens but i was supposed to be like supporting that process I was just kind of like learning how it works for me that I I think my contribution in the few first few like months was definitely just like you know putting in some automatic formulas in excel so that things would add up and they were just like this is magic and I was like yes I heard something if if it doesn't add up the cell will turn red if not it'll turn Correct. green <laughs> Correct. So I was like super happy with myself. I was like, "Wow, I'm really contributing here," and they were just like, "This is amazing." I mean, I'm I'm I think I'm a little bit of a caricature because um, there was this guy there who was just really good at it, and he was teaching me stuff. He was like, "Have you used Microsoft Access for database management?" And I was like, uh, "No." And so he was just like really disappointed. But um, that's what I did. But you know, there was like. Um, four budgets in two years because each year they would do like one budget and then midway through the year was like no this is not going to work we need another one and so two years four budgets that what i mostly did in the beginning uh, and then i later did some work on like debt sustainability um and like you know whether the country was borrowing too much or too little could it borrow more at the moment it was just like trying to drain down all its like petroleum resources to build roads and there were two big questions like are these roads useful 
uh, infrastructure projects or are they just like you know white elephants and then the second is if we're borrowing then who to borrow from and at what rate and like actually doing the negotiations with um kind of these donors or like uh those who gave the loan so like asian development bank or the world bank and stuff like that so for me it was much more of a learning process than a contributing process mm-hmm. uh just kind of you know having a seat in the room in the table in like cabinet meetings trying to figure out what it is like providing some support but it was mostly like civil servants who did everything and and you said through this entire year one thing you learned is the stuff you learned in the classroom was very different from what was actually happening in those rooms yeah exactly um i think you know like they can, like the public finance stuff that i did the year before it was a lot mm. more about like you know um like optimal finances and like you know how can you make sure that like the marginal return on <clears throat> every say dollar spent is you know of a certain value and um how do we like aggregate people's preferences in a way that makes sense in terms of expenditure and revenue collection and uh what kinds of taxes should we have like our capital taxes efficient or inefficient mm-hmm. and when the like i was saying when the budget actually gets made like a lot of it is just you know you support my coalition and you're going to get some more but we don't have sufficient for this and or maybe like you know um so like one of the things that i worked on was the civil service reform project which was like the um you know the ministry that was responsible for civil servants and like hiring and their kind of grades and uh, all of that and they had this like really ambitious thing where they wanted to pay their civil servants more um because you know they were like their salaries haven't been increased since like 10 years and civil servants don't make much money but the like the bill was huge in terms of like you know how much they could actually afford to increase the budget by and the thing with salaries for example is once you increase it it stays forever it's not yeah. like you know anyone will ever roll that back exactly so it was like a commitment not for the coming year but for like all years henceforth which is like a significant amount and yes you know it's not like you know, civil servants were like there was all of these debates about whether civil servants should earn more or not like are they productive how are they contributing to the economy like what impact does that have on the wage in the private sector um and but the thing is at the end of the day it was like you know we have to do something because we can't say no to this reform like that mm. was a part of like the implicit understanding so it was more like how can we make this a reasonable compromise that everyone is happy with including ministry of finance and like the you know the like the public service commission and the prime minister's office and like the parliament and it will just go through and that's not something they teach you in like public finance classes that yeah. like that's like you know if the marginal value of return is this or that you make this decision or that decision correct so i guess for me it was just like decisions don't get made like that it that's one component of it right like you do consider the technical aspect of it but obviously there's like the the politics of it and there's also like you know things like administratively is it feasible like you know will the money just be diverted somewhere else are there like ghost workers on the payroll who we need mm. to first you know like uh remove before we do this reform so all of these admin and political things that um that were key but i had not really studied 
um, and that I to me seemed like important questions of can the state do what it wants to do or what it claims to do so money is one part of it and that's why i was interested in public economics because i was like how governments spend is a key part of whether they can achieve things but it's not the only part there's also yeah so that's how my thinking changed a lot so so your thinking changed after those two years and you found your way to study more about like governance in the US. Um, you yeah. did that for a few years um, and then you ended up pursuing a PhD in a sort of similar kind of field back in UK. Mm-hmm. How, how mm-hmm. was life in the US? Like, do you prefer life in the US or did you prefer life in the UK? Oh God. Um, I think UK hands down. Hands down? Yes. Uh, I, this is not a good, I mean, I'm moving to the US next year again. So probably I should like, put in a few caveats. I think the main, the major caveat is I spent a few months in DC and I really liked it. Mm. So in the US, like I think I loved Washington, but on average, I think I like life in the UK a lot more. It's, you know, it's just very much, it's very convenient. And I, I think it's hard to explain why I like it more, but on on a day-to-day basis, you know, it's easier to be here is what I think than in the US. So, and this is my favorite example. I'm sure people, like, you know, I've used this a lot, but uh, like, you know, when you go grocery shopping in the UK, like whether you're in London or in Oxford or in like this tiny village, you will have a grocery store close by. You can walk to it. It will never be more than five or seven minutes away from where you are. Hmm. But in the US, there'll be like one big Tesco or uh, Walmart, Tesco, sorry, Tesco. one big, yeah, like Walmart or Trader Joe's in town or maybe two, yeah. they'll be really far away from where you live. You need a big car to get there. And like, you need to buy for like three weeks to make that trip worth it. Like, mm. it's just, it's a pain. Whereas here I'm like, oh, today I decide I need like cherry tomatoes for lunch. So like, let me just quickly run down to the shop two minutes away and buy some. And, uh, and maybe that's a really terrible reason for liking a place. <laughs> I think even things like public transport. I think public transport has been a very important part of my life in general. And um, again, I think UK is much better with things like that. So I really like living here. Mm -hmm. Um, And the education system is a bit more familiar than, you know, I think what we were exposed to. I don't know if it's the better one. I think there's pros and cons of both systems. But uh, yeah, I like living here. But if I'm given that I am moving to the US next year, I think DC is a nice place. I really like it. So you're moving to DC at the end of 20, early 2022. Yes. Are are you excited about that? Yes. I think at the moment I'm just like, my logistics brain is like, you have not done anything to put that move into, you know, like into making that happen. But uh, yeah, but I'm really excited. And I think, um, I think in that sense, DC is a very diverse place. There's really good food. Like I just like, you know, think back to all the great Ethiopian food, for example, that I had in DC when I was there. And I'm mm-hmm. already like, please, can I go now? Yeah. Me back. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm looking forward to it. But I have so many things to get done before I go. I'm telling you, I have like, all of these things that I have promised, I now have to deliver. <laughs> yeah, you're almost at the, at, the, at the tail end of your PhD. Um, mm-hmm. 
And yeah, I think when, when, when you were in college, I would never imagine how somebody could study for like four or five years. But I'm curious to know, like, what's been the most fun part of doing the PhD and most, what's been like the most like irritating or like the nuisance of, of, doing, of doing a PhD? You know, I think they're the same thing. Um, I think the, <laughs> the fact that you get to think about like big questions that really matter to you is both the best thing and the worst thing because on one hand you have a lot of time to think about it you are in a place where you know like that's your job and you are you're just thinking about that all the time which is great but then there are days when you realize that you can't do anything about it and things are the way they are or it's really you know to convert the thoughts and um ideas that you have into something that's systematic and useful and can be like um researched in a rigorous way with evidence that's really hard it's really really hard so i both love that and hate that and depending on what day it is um that's what makes me happy or sad got it i've heard phd is quite a like a lonely job to do like there are sometimes you just like you just have all the time in the world and you just like you don't i don't know if you have colleagues and stuff like that but was that the case for you I think there's a few parts to that, you know, the first is that, yes, it's definitely you're in your head a lot of the times, and it's really hard to communicate some of those things to anybody, even your supervisors, you know, like, I think I have great supervisors, and they get it as well, often, but it requires like, you know, being at the like, tiny margin of something really obscure. And, you know, like there's this debate that two people are having about something really, really, really tiny and nobody cares. Or, you know, like thinking about things that it is a lot of it is in your head um, and you have to figure it out yourself. That, make, that makes it hard. That's why there is a great kind of default community here. Uh, a lot of people at the of government and in other departments that are working on not exactly the same questions but similar questions similar methods so it's always actually good to you know talk to other people and yeah. get a reality check on what you're thinking and with the pandemic we did end up doing a few things um to kind of make that happen more because previously we would just run into each other and have those conversations but then it became difficult so we like you know, for example, set up this reading group where we would actually meet more regularly and each person would present something very basic that they were either thinking about or working on and get feedback from people who worked on similar but not very similar stuff. Hmm. So things like that really helped. But I think even personally, I've been kind of on the more, uh, on the further more introvertish side of my like personality here. I think the PhD did bring that out a little bit. Now that I'm close to finishing, I think I'm like, like you said, you know, my Instagram <laughs> is like buzzing. It's just because I, I'm in a more social place these days. And even people are like, we're seeing more of you than we have in a while. Um, so yeah, there is a personal aspect to it. I don't think every PhD is necessarily lonely. You can find the right support group. I, yeah, I just basically hid in my office for the long part long part of the phd um and, and why was that is, was that because the, the questions you were thinking about were very hard questions no not really i think i was just like i need to you know i was just exhausted on most days honestly and 
I had my like little routine, like you said, like when you know you're like you wake up early and do your stuff, and that is true. And I kind of liked that, and so I just kind of went with my routine. And yeah, I felt very like I just need my space right now, mm-hmm. which is a thing that often is true for me. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so when I'm in that zone of I need my space, then I just hide. Yeah. So you were basically in pandemic mode way before the pandemic actually happened. Exactly, exactly. That's what my mom says. She's like, I don't think anything about your life changed during the pandemic. <laughs> Just true, sadly. But I enjoyed it. And in fact, now that like I think things are like changing a little bit, I am actually more out and about, and I'm and I'm really enjoying this too. So it's yeah. not like I, yeah. So I just uh, yeah. There are these different uh, aspects of what I have done and like, you know, just the part that needs the me time and the part that obviously also needs to meet yeah. people and hang out. And I think now I'm really enjoying that phase too. So, so if somebody who knew you back in college ran into you today, uh, what do you think they would find the most different as compared to what they remember from Shruti in college? What do you think that would be? I don't know. It depends on what people used to think in college. Clearly, oh, what would I you want that I to was be? Like outside class, and you were like, "No, you were always in." Class, you were always so. in class. Come on, <laughs> maybe you you were you were in class and looking out of the window, but you were in class. That's true. Uh, I remember that ex core classroom with the you know that it yeah. had like those doors, and you could just keep looking out. It was. I don't know. Like, you like, you tell me one thing, and I'll tell you if it's the same or not. I don't know. You still read a lot, so I think that's that's pretty much the same. I don't know. Like usually, people have an answer. I think I. I yeah. No, I think I'm. Uh, you know, I don't think much has changed. I might be slightly less shy, maybe. Like mm. it's a very marginal thing. Like you know, very very marginal. Yeah, like I just recent conversations that I've had with people, and people like you don't come across as a very like shy person. And I'm like, wow, that would be something that would please a lot of people. Like I went back to college earlier this year, um, like doing this course on like public policy and governance, and um, and I kept telling everyone in the class, I was like, no, you have to like you know participate and like put stuff in the Zoom chat and like you know let's have a discussion and. I felt so strange saying that because I was like, I was the person who never said anything that ever, never. And they were like professors there, and I was like, Yeah, you're probably thinking like, you know, this girl, she didn't say anything in three years, and now she's like, Let's have a classroom discussion. So it was a bit strange. I realized that, but uh, yeah. So I think it's more my when I've had conversations with people, and they said, Yeah, you know, you've become much more. Like you're not, you don't come across as shy, and mm. that's when I was like, oh, maybe I'm less shy than I was before. Anyhow, nice. That might be a thing. You you recently taught a course at Stephen. How did that feel? Yeah, and I remember you messaged me. You were like, yeah. is that PK in the photo? Because I remember you put up an Instagram and you were like something something course, and I was like, is that like? And PK is one of our teachers. And I'm like, is Shruti doing like? Is she a lecturer now in college? I'm like, wow. Um, no, no, I'm not a lecturer. I'm, I'm, like most of the teaching has been in the specific courses, hmm. like at Oxford, for example, or this one, which was, um, 
I really loved it. I loved being back and kind of, you know, it was a lot of work. I think there was more work than I realized just putting together a course, like all the things that you've learned across all this time in a structure that doesn't overwhelm people, but also doesn't, you know, like miss out on the nuance and the complexity of a lot of the things, right? You don't want to be like, oh, governance is easy and this is why it's easy just because you have two hours. But uh, you also don't want to overwhelm people and say this is intractable stuff that can never be dealt with. So like, being able to put all of that together in a structure that I thought was a good one. <laughs> um, and so that was an interesting like intellectual challenge, I guess. And then the second part of it was like interacting with, you know, students at Stephen's and just being back in a you know, not in the physical sense, just in a very like literal sense. Yeah. Um, I- I've heard some people literal. who do PhDs, um, either they, they decide or they decide to do it or decide not to do it because they hate teaching. Um, given this experience, do, do you, do you think you enjoy teaching this yourself? Like, teaching? I do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I do. I really enjoyed it. I did. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how the students found it. They might have just been like, thank God, she's not in (laughs) academia and not a lecturer. But I really enjoyed it. I found it a very valuable experience um, in forcing myself to put those things together, but also communicating them and getting feedback. So actually, this, you know, class discussion thing did go pretty well, I think. In that sense, Zoom chats are amazing. People like really have such like smart things to say and they put it in like a really concise way on Zoom. And um, it was fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, and hanging out with like, you know, people. Yeah, and like, yeah I was there. I finished now. in 2013. Yeah. And they're like, oh my God. She is, uh, you know, I recently saw this thing on Instagram, I guess, where it said like, I would like to apologize to all the people who I call like, you know, who I thought were old at 30 when I was 18. And I was like, yes, I think I really, I mean, like, you know, getting to your 30s and you don't feel old, but I'm sure the 18 year olds are like, oh my God, these people are old. Yeah, yeah that's insane. Yeah, I can't believe it. I'm going to be turning 30 this year. Yeah, when I was 18, I thought 30 was end of life. Like it was done. Exactly. We were done. exactly. <laughs> And I'm just like, oh my God, like I still haven't figured anything out. (laughs) Oh man. If I recollect right, and it just hit me when you were saying that, you also been doing some like nonfiction writing, right? Because yeah, yeah, no, I saw you again on your Instagram. You showed up on some writer collective and they were interviewing you and they're like, Shruti's going to talk about her piece. And I think I watched a little bit part of it. I think on IGTV or some shit like that. What's that all about? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I, again, like I think I've just started sharing my writing a lot more now. So, you know, I have been writing for a while, but it's just, I think, again, the process of getting comfortable with sharing that and having people who don't know you reading that. So I think even with this podcast, for example, I was like, yeah, if my friends listen to this, they probably heard parts of it or, you know, they know how to put it in context. But I was really afraid about saying something with someone who doesn't know me, listens to and they're like, wow, that's such an extreme statement to make. Or that's such a like, you know, like if people know you, they can put qualifiers. But when yeah. people don't know you, that is hard. So I think this, it's anyway, 
uh, I, I, I think I didn't say anything very scandalous. I hope not. If I did, please edit it. <laughs> but I think the same is true for writing. I, you know, I, I felt shy for a very long time about sharing it with people who didn't know me to read it and then say, oh, that's what she thinks, which is, I think it's like the first part of, you know, being able to do something. But I started sharing more and I recently wrote this piece on like memory and, um, you know, history and how like personal memory and like larger historical narratives collide in different places that you don't expect and how we can use that in a way to learn like you know what can history teach us about trying to do things better in a policy context but also how do our personal memories shape us in a personal context and it was just like an essay uh, on that and hopefully there's more to come I'll, I'm going to try and see if I can get some pieces submitted before the end of the year and when you publish under your name on my instagram yes got it so far (laughs) wow i I checked out your website and i saw like like editorials you've written but um but this one was like more like fiction and like you know yeah yeah it's like this new you know this thing like narrative non-fiction and literary fiction and it's kind of in like Narrative nonfiction is this idea that you're going to take nonfiction but tell it with a story in this narrative style, which I think is beautiful. I think a lot of the books that actually do a really good job on nonfiction have been written in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I was trying to go with this. But yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully, let's see. Maybe more. And people can find that on your Instagram. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, my website is more like an academic thing, you know, like how academics have websites. I found it really strange to set it up. Because like, why do you need a website? But it's like, you know, for your research and stuff. But I also then have like this very non-academic stuff about books I'm reading and other things. So it kind of is somewhere in the middle. Who knows? Yeah, I think everybody should have a website. It's much better than checking out on LinkedIn. So, <laughs> or Facebook <laughs> or Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, please don't ever look me up on Facebook. I I haven't deleted that thing. I don't know why, but it's there. And I'm not at all active on it. So if you contact me on Facebook, you'll probably never hear from me. Which is not because I don't want to talk to you. It's just I never check it. I've lost my password. I can't be bothered to find it again. And same for Twitter, okay? I have a Twitter account, but that's just very much not in use. Shruti, I know we're on the hour, but um, when you look back, do you have two pieces of advice for 19, 18-year-old Shruti? One would probably be, don't call 30-year-olds old. <laughs> Correct. That's for sure. It. Like, you know, I think that many many times I like met older people and I just defaulted to uncle or auntie. <laughs> just because I didn't know what to say. And now I'm like, if someone calls me auntie tomorrow, I will die. Like, I'm not really have people auntie. called you auntie? No, not really, not yet. Please don't call me out. Um, unless like you're a one-year-old child, in which case it's acceptable. Um, I guess the second piece of advice would be like, I don't know, you know, I've done all this education over so many years, but I still like don't feel like I know anything. And <laughs> so I feel like it's, it's a process of constant learning. I don't think... Like if I had knew, if I had known this 
10 years ago i probably wouldn't have put so much pressure on myself to know it like mm. i think like many times you think if i do this masters program or if i do this i will know this and that for me at least hasn't happened so i guess just like get rid of that like don't think you need to know it think about learning constantly and whether that's in the classroom or in real life and you will just have like a much more like a a journey that you get a lot more out of because mm-hmm. you're humble enough to say i don't know and i want to learn it's a very unelegant way of putting this but i read this somewhere wherein the more you learn the more you realize how little you know um, yeah and the less you learn you think you know a lot yeah so i think that's been a journey of learning i would say and i have loved it throughout like probably not the most efficient journey people if you know you want to do a certain thing please don't take like two masters degrees and a phd to get there but still yeah it's not efficient but it was great i've met some really amazing people along the way i've got to live in some amazing places i would have been very happy with this journey if i knew this was my journey if this was if i knew this was what my journey would be when i was 18 and and how are you thinking about the future like what are you look for looking forward to now with this realization that you know i'm just going to go like learn along the way i'm not going to be doing masters in phd and this and that and that um how, how are you thinking about the future i think three things dominate my thinking right now the first is logistics which i really need to get on <laughs> like literally like I have to... yesterday <laughs> correct i have to pack up my life here and start stuff there and i'm kind of not doing well on either the mm. second is i think just um you know i still think that there's it's a, it's going to take a while to actually finish the phd i still you know there's a lot to do submit there's a defense then you know you might have to make changes so it's still a lot so i think mentally i would feel very happy when that's actually done mm. um and the third i think is just you know more of like an intellectual kind of next step that i want is to be able to put a lot of these things that i've spent time thinking about in a way that i actually you know i think i would find useful and others would find useful i don't know what the right form for that is mm-hmm. um i had hoped it would be my phd but that turned out to be something completely different so yeah you know i think just actually first figuring that out is something that i kind of want to keep working on over the next decade got it do 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 you have a question for me as we wrap up when are you coming to bc slash oxford slash east timor anywhere <laughs> i don't know about east timor um but um i actually might be in the us sometime next year um um i haven't traveled for two years so i've been yeah. in singapore for for yeah ever since i think march of 20 18 i 19 yes um no one of those years i don't know i don't know what year we are in year 2021 so yeah, i have been on of year 2020 and 2021 so i haven't traveled at all so i do want to sort of visit home but after that yeah i haven't met a lot of like our friends like like some of them are in the us yeah. now some of them are in india so and us is one place which i have a visa <laughs> So <laughs> logistically it's not that hard right oh, now. Yeah. Thank thank you for thank that was I think the one good thing I took away from Bain uh, a visa. 
<laughs> but uh, but yeah, hopefully, I think sometime next year, um, I might drop by visa. And, and Chuck lives in DC, so assuming that he still is there, um, I probably will visit DC. Um, maybe next year. No, not this year. I have one more question, actually. You know, there's like a lot of these... one question. <laughs> okay, go for it. Sorry, <laughs> like you know, a lot of these podcasts, like they have this episode, you know, where the hunter becomes the hunted, and then the person who does all the asking becomes like gets to sit on the hot seat, and then someone asks them the question. Mm-hmm. When are you doing that episode? Well, if I find a good interviewer, I'll have them interview me. I don't know who wants to interview, I'll interview me. you. What? I'll interview you. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could do that. Uh, but well, in in every every episode, the 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 so-called hunty uh, gets to ask me a question. So it's it's um, yeah, I think a compilation of that. But no, no maybe maybe we could do an episode wherein somebody asks me. It's it's only fair. Yeah, I think I've shared a lot through the podcast. But but yeah, it'd be cool not not to worry so much about <laughs> thinking about the show. If you record, you got to edit it. That's like the hardest part of my job. Oh like, God, ed- no. editing all of this. I'm just like ah. Oh. No, so, no. if you want to no. interview, you got to edit too. <laughs> no. Okay, that, that I took my offer back. <laughs> like, I can edit a transcript, but I cannot edit a video. It, it seems too technologically complex. Well, there are tools now which will translate this entire conversation to a Word doc. And you can edit the Word doc and it sort of edits the voice. Okay, so then I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> My offer is back on the table. If people want to keep up with you, um, how is the best way they should get in touch? Instagram. <laughs> What's your handle? For now, for now, guys, I can't promise anything for next. Soon will be TikTok. Maybe next. So, yeah, yeah. So you're at Shruti Lakshya, yeah? Yeah, and there's a dot in the middle. Shruti dot. Shruti dot. And me, just search my name. I think you'll find. Awesome. Cool. I think with that, we shall wrap this. Shruti, thanks a ton for doing this and uh, waking up waking up in the morning and, and doing this. Thank you so much. It's been super fun. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to, that we could do this. Awesome. Thank you. We shall wrap. And that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the podcast. If you've been enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review. You can review us on Apple Podcast or any of your podcast players. If on Spotify, just go follow us. If you've enjoyed this ad-free experience, it's because we don't have any sponsors. But if you'd like to support the show, you can now buy us a coffee. You can find the link in the show notes below. I upload new episodes every Saturday, not Friday, and I'll see you in the next one.